to the Recombobulator Lab with Jason Graham Nye and Chris Dominic. Christopher Jeremiah Dominic, good morning. Good morning, Jason. You have no idea, do you? No. I, when uh, you hit me with things like Jeremiah, I don't know what to say. Really? I mean, you know Jeremiah is not my middle name. You're just testing my wittiness is what you're I doing. Am. You're setting me up to fail. It's not like I've ever done that to you. Oh. Ever. Six quizzes later. Hey, Jason, you want to know what's really cool? Yeah, what's really cool? I don't know. What's cool? So you're down in Australia. Uh-huh. Okay. And it's uh, 12.25 for me. And it's, what? what is it for you? It's 7.24 in the morning on Valentine's Day. You guys do Valentine's Day? Is the Pope Catholic? Oh, okay. Well, yeah. So, and then guess what? Guess who's here? Uh, I, I don't know. Thomas Doba's phone right now no from way. France. <gasps> yes. Hey, hi, Tom. Hi, Jason. We're, hi, tri- <laughs> we're, we're tri-continental. Woo. We are. I've been here the whole time. <laughs> he's been he's been over listening to us. He's kind of creepy when you do it like it that. A little bit. We invited Tom on because, as you have all heard, if you listened to the last episode, I threatened Jason with the fact that at some point I'm going to ask him the big hairy environmental questions about how we save the world and things like that. And we noticed that Tom's episode is one of the highest rated, if not the highest rated, depending on the day. So we thought let's just have Tom back on. Everybody knows Tom at this point. Totally. This is a massively embarrassing question. So can I just start with this one this is a personal and embarrassing question tom i want to know exactly how to pronounce your surname because i've always thought it was ozdoba oh no is it ozdoba the jury's out really oh good our our family has pronounced it ozdoba as long as i recall but i don't think that there's a definitive pronunciation are you just trying to bail me out tom and no phonetically it's (laughs) clearly ozdoba and oh uh, okay but i'm never expected to be pronounced right ever Hey, before I get started, I have something light but interesting. You ready? Go. Okay. So you remember how in the first episode we explained how we came up with Recombobulator Lab was really your thing, Jason. You said there's underwhelmed and overwhelmed, but there's never whelmed. And there's legs akimbo and arms akimbo, but never akimbo. Yep. Philip Golden of Los Angeles told us there's another recombobulation out there for us, and that is incidence and coincidence, but no sidence. Oh, that's interesting. God, English is such a mess. Coincidence. coincidence. Yeah. No yeah. Silence. Anyway. No, yeah. it's yeah. No, it's crazy. It's crazy. If any of the rest of you think of any more of those, throw them in. It's kind of fascinating. Okay. <laughs> There's problems all over the place. You guys probably got the message that there was 140 people missing after a glacier broke into India's Himalayas the mm. other day. That's just one of many things that are causing problems throughout the world that are largely linked to climate change. Yep. So, and the problem, as you've mentioned before, Jason, and I think you, Tom, is that a lot of times when we talk about environmental catastrophe, the problem problem is the the numbers are really, really bad. And so sometimes it kind of shuts down the conversation because at some point somebody will say, well, you know, we're all doomed. (laughs) So taking that aside, what can we do? I wanted to just throw it out to both of you. When we go to the big, hairy question, how are we all going to get out of this alive? Where do we start? (laughs) I finished the dishes. I got some wine and some water because it's going to take a miracle (laughs) to sort this out, but we'll do our best. Humans have really, really hard time dealing with big numbers. And so if you frame it like this, so the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, 4.6 billion is an impossible number. So let's 
scale it to 46 years. So let's assume the Earth is 46 years old. Humans have been here for four hours. The Industrial Revolution began one minute ago. And in that time, we've destroyed more than half the world's forests. Now, has someone got some wine? We know Tom does. I think it's helpful because I think we look at the big disasters like the one you just mentioned, Chris, and other things. And it's kind of hard to piece it all together. But just to understand the level of impact of human activity in in this incredibly short amount of time, it's just important because you see things like net zero by 2050. What does that mean? Oh, a two degree increase in temperature. That doesn't seem much. And even just linguistically, the idea of global warming sounds quite nice. Like it's an interesting thing language wise that we haven't really framed this as a a holy heck, we've got to do something. So I just wanted to add that context before Tom, let's rip. Tom, save us. (laughs) Maybe just to, to start by, I think Chris, you brought up policy and start by anchoring it a bit into some of the things that have been happening in the last month. One of the things that's happened in the last three weeks now is that the United States government has now rejoined the nations of the world as a signatory to the Paris Agreement, which is probably the single most encompassing international accord around climate mitigation action and trying to drive down greenhouse gas emissions towards a two-degree increment of warming scenario. Obviously, since the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015, the UN Climate Change Panel has come out and said actually 1.5 degrees is what we meant. So we need to do more, better, faster than even what the Paris Agreement has done. But in terms of policy, I think it's worth acknowledging that the United States coming back into the Paris Agreement and the Biden administration rolling out several initiatives, appointing a cabinet that is going to be quite aggressive. And in fact, it by appearances, much more aggressive than even the Obama administration on climate action. Those are encouraging signs. Is that going to make all the difference? Absolutely not. I think if I was to start with a little bit of a policy good news, I think a few things are worth noting in addition to the Paris Agreement. One is, I think you saw General Motors committed to you know zero mm, internal combustion yeah. engines by 2035. We can say, well, that should have happened 10 years ago, and we should be five years from that transition. But What's the good in that at this point? Yeah, we're in the world we're in. What we've also seen is several states, several utility companies, etc., pledging to have the electricity system to be completely free of fossil fuel energy and 100% renewable energy by 2035 or 2040. So there's encouraging signs about the pace and the level of change that is being sought. So th- those are all very encouraging. But I also got from what you just said that if we were talking three months ago, you would have a more dire outlook. Yeah, there would be far less to be optimistic about. And I agree. I think America rejoining the world is terrific. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, we're back. Yeah. <laughs> Just hanging out by myself for a few years. But you think of the UK and Brexit, is that an example of the country going in the other direction? Or how do you see that in terms of sustainability? I think if you look at Brexit as a UK variant, and I know variant is a, is a word we don't want to throw around a lot right now, but <laughs> if, you, if you look at that as a UK variant of the mm-hmm. kind of nationalism and populism that plagued the United States and is pretty significant in other countries in Europe, but not to the point in which they're walking away from the European 
European Commission, you can at first blush say, yes, it's going to be a step away. However, I think in the case of the UK, there is a deep commitment to climate action that even this government is not going to be able to back away from. And that's driven as much by a groundswell of activity from citizens and cities and some moves at national level. But there's a real commitment to climate action in the UK. So I I think it's a little less of a problem. Right. One of the options here, or one of the ideas is that there's sometimes there's an, an entity that will sponsor something that can get us ahead. And I'm, as Jason knows, I'm fascinated by some of the technological solutions to this, because often I'm dubious about human beings' ability to get together and actually do some of this stuff in regard to behavioral change. And there's this new winner of this architectural contest that I just sent out to you guys yesterday, the Eighth Continent, that was designed by an architect who studied ocean pollution and developed the idea a few years back at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna. And it's this massive entity that floats in the Pacific Ocean that collects waste and harvests tidal energy. It has a collector that sorts and biodegrades and stores waste. It has a research and education center where inhabitants study and showcase the effects on our oceans. It's got greenhouses where plants are grown and water is desalinated. And there's living quarters where people live. It's kind of like a Skylab. No, Skylab. (laughs) Or an international space station, but it's in the ocean and it's functioning. It has a practical purpose. Sure, it's just at a concept level at this point, but I just couldn't help but think that's not being generated by a corporation or even a country, right? It's being generated basically out of a like a nonprofit philanthropic organization. So what role do they play in all this? They do play a key role in my mind. I think the problem is that it's sort of end of pipe is the idea, this end of pipe techniques, which is like the damage is done. Once plastic is made, and in the world I'm in, in baby diapers of all things, there's a cup mm-hmm. of oil in every diaper. So just to blow your mind a little bit, one child takes 5,000 diapers. Oof. Just one child, okay? So you've already done the damage. You've extracted the oil, you've made the plastic. And so these technologies around cleaning up the plastic sort of frustrates me a little bit because it feels like a Band-Aid. And you, the, the very logical solution is you've got to redesign from the beginning. Now, of course, that's systems change, which us humans hate beyond anything else because the status quo is so comfortable. But I think that vision that you described is amazing. But I feel like, gosh, is a much easier. Well, maybe it's not, but it's... Well, you might need both at this point, right? Oh, yeah. You're going to put a bigger dent in this if you have something that you invent to clean up what you've already done and you change your behavior. Mm-hmm. If you change your behavior, you still have to clean stuff up. And if you're cleaning stuff up and you haven't changed your behavior, well, that really is silly, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think technological responses to the issue are interesting. Like there were whole ideas about blasting stuff up into the atmosphere to do something. I can't remember Tom will know the details. But for mine, the biggest liability, the biggest hole in this whole thing is human behavior and understanding how we operate. And the, the dominating theory is this theory of planned behavior, which is this idea that if I know Chris and Tom's attitudes and beliefs, I can predict their behavior, which in some ways is true. But if I surveyed you two and 100 people and I asked, will you make the pro-environmental community? consumer choice. 95% of you will say yes. And yet 5% of you at checkout will do that. And that's a big problem. That's a huge problem. Clearly behavior change is at the heart of this. If if 95% of the people are saying something like, sure, I'm on board. You know, I have no reason to hurt anything, but then they don't actually do it. That has something to do 
with behavior change and that's mm-hmm. not having a lot of motivation to change it and that kind of so I was thinking of a real practical example which is in Portland we only get trash service every two weeks we get recycling and composting service weekly and what you have to admit to yourself is that if you didn't have that you probably wouldn't have changed some of the behaviors that you have because what makes you crazy is overflowing your garbage and having to pay for extra bags of garbage what people do now is they work very very hard to make sure that there isn't recyclables going in the garbage because mm. it's expensive and it's annoying. Mm. Uh, and so even if you're not environmentally bought in, you're probably getting into some good behaviors. Well, there's it's a, it's it's a, it's a great jumping off point. And there's a couple of things I'd like to throw into the mix there. I think what's mm. notable about what in the case of Portland, what they've done is they changed the system and that's what's driving the behavior change. Right. And I think and I think one of the things that's a most important thing for us all to remember is if it's easy for us, we will do the right thing. But if it requires mm-hmm. us to do something different, it is commanding attention in oversubscribed brains. Yep. And if you ever want to talk to somebody who's done a lot of research on this, I'm happy to put you in touch with a friend of mine who's taught me a lot about how to think about behavior change. And his mantra is change the behavior, then change their minds. Hey, Chris. Hey, Jason. Do you believe in spirit? Like booze or ghosts? Really? It's always grog and ghosts with you, isn't it? What I mean is the essence of something. Oh, sure. Well, you know, we have a spirit down here in Australia. Really? So like... Bundaberg rum? Enough, my barmate. The spirit of Australia is in fact Qantas Airlines, our new sponsor. Well, that's been their tagline since the beginning of time. Oh, that's right. The Recombobulator Lab is now proudly sponsored by the safest airline in the world. You betcha. Now, John Travolta was their famous front man. He's a big pilot guy and had a vintage 707 he'd fly around. It featured in Rain Man. And they never fall out of the sky, which is super important for me when I choose an airline. And they offer organic hot chocolate and Tim Tams, a quintessential Australian biscuit or cookie, as you say, even in cattle class, where I do all of my traveling, sadly. So when we've beaten the pandemic to a pulp, fly Qantas and feel the spirit of Australia. Part of it is based on research on our cognitive capacity, which is that we have actually far less cognitive capacity and capability than we think we do. And in fact, what we mostly do is respond to the systems around us. The reason we do that is because it takes very little brain power to actually just do the right thing if the system is well designed. That's just consistent with stuff we've talked about endlessly on this show. The idea that if I successfully get you to a place of behavior change and then I hit you up with an argument that your first reaction to your gut is, oh, that's not a big deal, then you are persuaded. But if your gut says, oh, I really don't want to give up my weekly trash, then you're going to come up with reasons not to do it. You're Mm -hmm. going to fight it. Because it doesn't sound pleasant. It sounds painful. It sounds uncomfortable. And it's putting you in the position to be the actor driving the decision as opposed to just one person in the system who's responding to the to the conditions that they experience. And, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to transfer that point to something that's critical in the climate conversation, which is how do we make our buildings more efficient and use less energy? And depending on the city uh, or area you're in, that's 30, 40, even in some cases, 50% of that city or that area's contribution to greenhouse gas emissions is coming from building energy use. And so we've been pushing and pushing and pushing to make buildings more energy efficient and to accelerate their transition away from fossil fuel energy. And it's utterly failed, and it's utterly failed for more than 30 years. It doesn't mean some people aren't doing it because they are, and we're learning about what you can do and how it performs. And the, the perverse situation we find ourselves in is that 
for most buildings, it's economically good for everybody to make that building as efficient as possible. And now increasingly to transition it to cleaner forms of energy as fast as possible. But as individual actors, building owners are terrible at it. And we shouldn't, and part of where I've gotten to after working on this for like 15 years is we should be taking building owners out of the decision-making process as an actor. Because if we really need a systemic intervention, we need a systemic intervention, not an individual actor intervention that we then have to replicate literally millions and millions and millions of times. We mm. will run out of time and we'll never get the impact. And people think that's really harsh to say, well, actually, we should be making decisions decisions for building owners about the energy use in their buildings. But government and utilities do that all the time for everything else, right? Mm -hmm. Building owners don't get to decide whether to connect to the water supply or the sewer system. They don't get to decide whether they're going to have garbage service or not. Sometimes they get to pick their company. But range of decision-making is very limited, except in mm -hmm. this one case of how energy is used in their building. And they don't have the technological capabilities. They don't have the information. They won't make the time to learn, and they're not going to use their own money. But if it's cost Cost effective. Why should we make that their job? Let's mm -hmm. do that for them. It takes a very strong policy mindset to do that. But we, but again, what I would argue is we do that in other ways with building owners. So it's not that different. We just got to get our mind around. Actually, this is a key step that we have to take rather than how do we get building owners to do something that for 30 years they've been telling us they will not do. Yeah, yeah, that's huge. I think it's interesting that like, we live fundamentally, the system we live in is an economic system and pricing any behavior is super effective. So in Australia, we had a Labor government five years ago, so Democrat, they priced carbon and lo and behold, and we're one of the biggest polluters in the world because we have so many extractive industries here, gas, oil. Mm. But it, lo and behold, if you price a bad behavior, if you tax a bad behavior, it actually works. Another example in Germany, in terms of we all, as in our rates, we pay for garbage collection and it's quite passive. So if I'm a consumer and I change my behavior, like I, if I'm more efficient with my recycling, I don't get a lower bill. But in cities in Germany, every time you put your garbage out every week, the truck that collects your bin every week weighs that and you get charged based every week on exactly how much waste you produce, which I think is super interesting because the agency sits with the consumer and you can absolutely make a choice about how much you're going to pay, which I think is kind of cool. It's far more direct. That reminds me of the way they handle people's healthcare costs in, um, I'm trying to remember what part of Japan. It's the place where they have the marine base it they measure you and weigh you <laughs> oh you're kidding no it's like there's some places uh, in america in the south where if you weigh you to determine how much they're going to charge you wow <laughs> if like it's a buffet or whatever it's not a common practice but people think it's really funny because it's you know there's some people who are coming in there just to crush your buffet right so but apparently in this part of japan there's nothing uh culturally wrong with being like okay you know mr or whatever you know you're you're getting a little big so we're taking your uh you're get we're, we're taking your health care costs up <laughs> that's so good that's not gonna work oh, in america pal God. <laughs> Really good. That is so funny. Just to connect it to what we're going to be experiencing over the next 12 to 18 months, hopefully, hopefully just 12 to 18 months. But, you know, Denmark has floated the idea of a vaccine passport. Mm -hmm. 
right. as a way right. to enable freedom of movement to start to flow as as we start to get significant portions of the population vaccinated. And a vaccination passport, I would say, at least on a first blush, would be a very effective behavioral way to deal with this anti-vaccination segment of oh, the population. Right. Oh, I because see what you're saying. Because you want to move, you can believe whatever you want, but if you want to travel, you got to have a passport. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and... It's, right, and, it's, and that's that's not something you have a right to, right? It's like your passport isn't a right either. It's something you have to go and get. That's that's right. That's right. And it, look, there's a public health, literally a public health reason why you would do that. And again, it's changed the system change to change behavior. You'll change their minds later, right? Because if they mm-hmm. get vaccinated because it's so important to them to be able to go somewhere, mm-hmm. I think that's um, brilliant. then they're all, all of a sudden going to have to confront the fact that I got vaccinated and you know what? It didn't kill me and it didn't make me crazy. Well, Jason and Tom, I'd like to throw this at you though. To the people out there that are actually thinking right now, but I really would like, it would make me feel better if nothing mm-hmm. else. Mm-hmm. What's the most meaningful things they can do in their everyday lives that they may or may not know about? Well, if, if we want to focus it on their behavior in the economic system, not their behavior in the political and governance system. Mm. We, you could pick whatever you like. Yeah. Well, I would say that the areas that they can make, and there was a fascinating, I forget who did this. I think it was a foundation or some nonprofit did this online quiz to test how, what actions you think would have the biggest impact in terms of reducing your carbon footprint, if you would. And it's, mm-hmm. it's really quite fascinating to see. But I think, you know, I think the three things that, that I would say start with, I'll do this in the order of what I think is easiest to sort of engage because it doesn't take a lot of technical information. So the first is to understand where the hell your food's coming from. Mm, sure. And to start to make choices that reduce the distance your food travels. And distance is more important than what, although what does matter. But distance is far more important. So start to look at ways to buy food that's produced close to you. And that will take you down a path of learning where your food comes from and starting to make layers of new choices about, for example, supporting small farmers versus big industrial sources, uh, looking for organic sources, or even reducing the amount of certain kinds of food, etc. It'll make you healthier, for sure. That will be one benefit. But it would have a pretty significant ecological benefit. The other is... The other two are around the buildings that you live and work in and how you move around, including flying around, whether professionally or for for vacation, and looking at ways you can reduce your contribution to the problems from those particular spheres. And it, there are a lot of layers to all of those things, And but information exists. And so if you only pick a few things, you can get that information and you can get people, in most cases, you can get people to kind of handhold you through that process. And, you know, the last thing I'd say about it before I turn over to Jason is it, it doesn't take a lot to reflect on that and go, if I do my part, that's good, but it's not going to add up unless everyone else does theirs. And it's easy to get into that self-defeating logic. I would say that is, that's a journey everyone needs to go through because at the end of the day, it's still good to do that, that, and it still matters, right? Even if we think we're going to blow by two degree warming scenarios, which means, you know, life on life for us is going to get very hard. Mm -hmm. The less we go 
over that, the better, right? Yeah. So just yeah. be, you know, it's not two, if it's not two degrees, then it could be eight degrees. That's two and a half degrees is a far better scenario than four degrees. Absolutely. And then Jason, in transition over to you, I'm going to just answer the first one for you, so you don't are, you aren't put in a strange position. Which is one of the things people could do every day if they have very young children is not use plastic diapers. <laughs> 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 it's so interesting. I mean, thank you for that, Chris. God, what a genius you are. Yeah, of course. Genius. Number two to you. <laughs> I, I, I would agree with Tom because I think what you've done there is identify the biggest impacts CO2-wise, right? So particularly, I'm amazed at the cognitive dissonance of airplane travel. I remember going to sustainability conferences mm. in, um, in California and back in the day, you know, Bill Clinton and the Clinton Global Initiative would attend and, and I remember the event organizers would say, and and for logistics, you know, our closest airport is wherever. But we do have a private airstrip for those traveling private. And I remember thinking, really? We're all just going to plow in there in planes? So I agree with those things. And I also really agree with the one of the big problems is the idea that I can't make a difference. And on a more macro level, you see sort of when America wasn't a part of the Paris Agreement, the argument as well, you know, China's not going to hold up their part of the bargain and they're a way bigger polluter. So why should we even try? Which is one of those great self-defeating arguments. Mm-hmm. So it is easy to um to get to that sort of level of well how can one person do anything effective so i'd agree with all of the things that thomas has talked about i think people underestimate their their behavior can signal to people around them in their community about what's important and i've noticed i don't know if the brand keep cup is in the us and europe but it's just one one of many brands of reusable coffee cups and australians drink an inordinate amount of coffee and just watching the number of people who go to cafes with their own cups is, is kind of a cool thing and the number of cafes who offer their own cups that are reusable and you can return them and what have you. It's a tiny behavior, but as as Tom says, they all add up and it's important to um, to recognize that and to give consumers agency because the worst thing in the world is that sense of defeatedness, that sense of I can't do anything. So that's that's um, that's um the only things I'd add to that really. There's things you can do every day, absolutely. I think it's shopping local and I think COVID's done this big time in our community when we were in lockdown and you could only walk, you know, a certain distance all of a sudden you were shopping very, very locally. And then you were thinking about, well, where are the products from this shop coming from? So Mm -hmm. I think in a strange way, COVID's helped us. Yeah. So Chris, what are some of the bright sparks you see that keep you hopeful for the future? Yeah. So as somebody who doesn't know half of what you guys know about this stuff, I would say that the common observations I'm making are one, you know, and the Super Bowl comes out, GM basically says, here's how it's going to be. I think that's a pretty big statement considering the size and importance of that organization. The success of Tesla on the West Coast in particular with the fact that we've got a, you know, you can travel I-5 for free in a Tesla, basically, because of the, I, I don't remember what they call them, the charging stations that are, have been put in place along the way. And that 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 shows people that that's going somewhere. It, there's electric motorcycles now. And it actually got me thinking while you guys were talking about airplanes. I'm not sure if everybody knows just how much pollution comes from airplanes, but it, it's bad. And it, it made me wonder, is anybody working on like an electric jet? Oh, you know, I don't right. even know if that's possible, but it, it, it sure would make sense considering uh, how this is all I, going. I can, I can answer that question. Yes, yeah. um, uh, they've used um, algae, algae. They derive oil from algae and they've put a couple of United Airlines planes in the air that was pure, absolutely zero emissions and Virgin did Whoa. the same, but they can't scale it and it comes back to yeah. systems change and affordability. But yes, it's possible. Mm. Oh, that's amazing. Mm. Yeah, so I think it's things like that that make 
people think. I think the darkest days I had around the environment had to do with the fact that it just appeared to the the fact that nobody was ever going to change because of their self-interest. Car companies were incredibly stubborn, way past the point where they really should have been, which we had mentioned earlier. But now that that dam has seemed to broken, it seems like other things should follow. It feels like there's more people who don't actually care about the environment as much as other people do, are still doing things to live a better life. And I think to some degree, it has to do with the practicality of it all. Mm. Um, I, I think some people, they realize, well, okay, if it's just as easy to do X or Y, if Y is better, I'll do Y. Mm. It's it's very similar to what we've been talking about. The problem before is, you know, it's five times more expensive to get this kind of food, or it's five times more expensive to buy this kind of a vehicle or whatever. And it's really tough to have some middle class person been put up in front of that and somebody shames them for not being environmental enough. And they're sitting there going like, what, I'm not going to spend half my income on that. I mean, I think that's the part that's changing. You know, the food that isn't bad for you is getting cheaper. More environmentally sustainable methods of existing on a daily basis are becoming more normal and more inexpensive and more fulfilling for, I think, a lot of people. So I think that's the part for me that's all all hopeful and good, even though we're all doomed. (laughs) Hey, let's hear from our sponsors. Oh, I couldn't help myself. You hit me yeah. with that cornest one last time. So, yeah, you know, sorry about yeah, that. yeah, no, it's okay. Tom, do you want to throw in here? Is there something more to uh, throw to the party? That maybe just a, a last thing to add to the mix is, you know, I've been, I've been doing this work for more than 30 years in a variety of different ways. And I think one of the things that's good to remind ourselves is that we're, we're one, two, three people out of, you know, what's approaching seven to 8 billion people on this planet. And, you know, Jason, gave us a sense of time scale of earth and you know mm-hmm. it's important to just get a, to grips with ourselves and have some humility about we are what we're capable of doing and what we're not and to really just do our part and if we can do small things then we're more likely to support bigger changes down the path but if yeah. we can't do the small things there's no way that those big hard policy moves are going to happen. And so it's important to hold on to that, not only because it's something that you can do, but because it's critical to us taking bigger steps forward. And, you know, I think I, I think the last two things I would say very, very briefly is one of the things I've been most encouraged about over the last several years is that the environmental justice movement has really stepped to the fore as leaders within communities at being able to champion this kind of work. And why why that's important is because it also more deeply aligns doing the right thing for the environment and for climate with doing the right thing for our communities economically. And I think that's going to be pretty critical to accelerating our progress. And then the last thing I'll throw out just as a hopeful sign is, and because Jason has sort of prompt me to think about, well, is there a country that's just knocking it out of the park? And I, you know, everybody knows the, the th- stats about Norway and electric vehicles and stuff, but mm-hmm. I would say get to know or and everybody knows about New Zealand you know and what they're doing but get to know a little bit about what's going on in Costa Rica not a rich country not a big player but they are absolutely ahead on renewable energy on ecosystem integrity on blending the economics of tourism mm-hmm. with preservation of their heritage, their natural environment, et cetera. And there's something going on there that we should all be learning from. That's a great one. Yeah, that is an awesome example. Yeah, they are, they are phenomenal. Yeah, you know, uh, Jason, I think Tom has earned a title from us. 
Oh, really? What do you think? Oh, I yeah. think he's a. I think he's a friend of the lab. Friend of the lab. I feel like we could keep going on this for some time. <laughs> well, no, I mean, honestly, we're really just scratching the surface of this. Uh, it, uh, honestly, Tom, thank you so much. Thanks for being a friend of the lab, man. This is this has been great. Thank you. I like that we're tricontinental. It's very good. I yeah. know tricontinental. The next time we have Tom on, we're going to speak French. Which, if we drink a bit of red wine could actually happen maybe we do that i think we should although yeah. drinking red at seven yeah. o'clock in the morning for me could be a struggle mm, that does sound mm-hmm. like jason a, i know a, you that's not yeah. going to be a problem at all <laughs> oh i so knew you were going there i think oh. we might have done that once <laughs> i think that's payback for some of the crap you were saying about him yeah hey so Hey, everybody out there, thanks so much for tuning in. We've got some really exciting stuff coming up soon. We really want to thank you for all your continued support, and we will see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Say bye, Tom. Goodbye. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So enthusiastic. Get me back to my red wine now. Bonsoir. Au revoir. There you go. joining us at the Recombobulator Lab with Chris Dominic and Jason Graham-Nine. Catch you next time.